0: In 1968, Broadway patrons were told that when the moon was in the 7th house and Jupiter aligned with Mars, then peace would guide the planets and love would steer the stars. After all, it was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But in 1968, there was little harmony and understanding. No, in fact, there were student riots, multiple assassinations and a raging war in Southeast Asia but somehow the usa survived i'm Dr. Alan Campbell and this is watching america
1: All my life watching america All my life
0: panic in america oh oh oh, oh. trouble in america oh, 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 oh.
1: from whrv norfolk This is Watching America.
0: While reflecting on a difficult time, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II invoked the Latin phrase "annus Horribilis in reference to a particularly regrettable year. The truth is, royal or otherwise, we all eventually experience an off year or two but what happens when an entire nation experiences its own Annus horribilis 1968 I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America.
1: There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there
0: Telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop. stop. Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going to
1: stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going there to stop. Now what's, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going
0: there to stop. Children, what's that sound? Doctor Kevin Boyle, he is my guest. He is the William Smith Mason Professor of American History at Northwestern University. He has written multiple works addressing modern American social movements. He has been a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize and has been published in newspapers widely, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. Dr. Boyle is currently working on his anticipated book entitled The Splintering, a narrative history of the 1960s. Welcome, Dr. Boyle, to Watching America.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I don't think there is a more concentrated decade uh, in certainly the 20th century and still even into the 21st century where we have had more going on than the 60s. And moreover, the heightened pinnacle of activity within that decade would probably, I hope you will agree, would be 1968.
1: Yeah, it's really an extraordinary year of upheavals and transformation.
0: Well, I've seen you on video, and it's very evident that you and I are not completely full-blown baby boomers, we're, we're, we're dragging the, the latter part of that behind a little bit, so you must have been very young during 1968. What, what are your childish recollections of, of 1968, if you have them?
1: I do, actually. I'll preface that by saying I was, for most of 1968, I was seven years old, so you can take memories for what they're worth. But I was growing up in Detroit, which was a city that underwent really dramatic and violent upheavals in 1967, where it had the worst urban disorder of the 1960s. And so my memories of 1968, at least the wider politics of 1968, really pivot around the centrality of race and the enormous fears that ran through Detroit in 1968.
0: Do you have specific visual recollections that come back of perhaps a a very potent moment which uh, still resonates in your psyche to this day from that experience as a child?
1: Yeah, two, actually. Both of them associated with two of the most horrific events of 1968. Um, I distinctly remember the week after Martin Luther King was murdered, um, which happened to coincide in... The Christian calendar with Holy Week, with the week before Easter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember I'm white, and the neighborhood I grew up in was white, and I just remember this incredible level of fear that if someone African-American happened to show up on the block, someone working on the block, and the distinct memory I have, which also dates me, I admit, was of an African-American milkman coming on the block, and this kind of panic— spreading through the neighborhood, especially the neighborhood kids who thought something awful was about to happen. And then I also have a very sharp memory of my parents watching TV on the night of Robert Kennedy's burial. Um, he There was a funeral mass, I now know, I didn't know then, in New York City at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And then there was this long train ride, now famous train ride, to carry his body to Arlington in Virginia. And I remember my parents watch until so the funeral, the burial, the internment, wasn't until the evening. So it took forever for them to get there. And I remember my parents sitting in our living room watching that. And I think it had a special resonance for them because my parents were Irish immigrants. And so the Kennedy family carried a kind of weight for them as new Americans, really, um, that I think it was greater than for many people.
0: Well, certainly there was chaos all around the world in 1968. We had uh, this Paris student riots going on. Uh, we had unrest, as you've alluded to already, in, in the United States, in the inner cities, uh, to be sure. Um, even in London, there were protests. Uh, the Rolling Stones tune from Beggar's Banquet, Street Fighting Man, was about um, riots, all about the Vietnam War. In your mature years, what led you to concentrate on the
1: 1960s? That's a fascinating question, actually. Um, I think for me, as an American historian, and that's what I do for a living, I see in the 1960s this pivotal transformation of American society, the American society that emerged from World War II, pivots in the 1960s into the America that we now know. And it's a different America than the America that existed in the 1940s, and the 1950s, it's and many of the tensions that we now see playing out immediately are the tensions of the 1960s enduring.
0: So it's the continuous 60s, as you've indicated. Now, uh, let's deal domestically first, and then we'll consider things from abroad. Certainly one of the cardinal things, as you've alluded to already, is uh, assassinations. So we have Dr. Martin Luther King assassinated in Memphis at the Lorraine Motel. Uh, He is taken from this world at the tender age of 39. And uh, we know that James or Ray um, was eventually captured at Heathrow Airport, been on the run. But from that moment on, did that alter irrevocably civil rights issues in the United States?
1: I think civil rights issues in the United States were already being altered before King's assassination. King was in Memphis in support of a strike by sanitation workers who were overwhelmingly, I think, almost exclusively African-Americans. And he was there in hopes of, and partly in hopes of, building a mass movement of the disenfranchised, of the poor, be they African-Americans, Latinos, whites. He was trying to address the fundamental question of economic inequality that, again, we live with to this day. I think, though, that King's assassination in the spring of 1968 did mark something really profoundly important, because what King embodied, what King proclaimed, was a vision of America that could, in fact, overcome its original sin— of racism that could become what he and other people in the movement and his wing of the movement called the beloved community, a vision of Americans united by their commitment to America's founding promise.
0: Now, one of the interesting things is, and, and some people would just dis- dismiss this as being rather superficial, it wasn't, but already by 1968, uh, the influence of King was felt in media, particularly in portrayals. Even if you look at, you know, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, we have Nichelle Nichols who mm-hmm. plays the role of Lieutenant Uhura. Uh, we have, at the time, or with, um, you know, excluding later complications in his life, we have Bill Cosby in I Spy. So there was in in media. Suddenly, I remember this this surgence of. Uh, African American portrayals in dramas of various sort. So there was a beginning to be a cultural shift, which was evident. However, if I can just make a rather awkward connection, because we've also are going to be speaking about Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy and his assassination, when he was with, we are told, his brother as uh, Attorney General, he had actually um, brought about and secured the bugging and recording unbeknownst to him of Martin Luther King. How can we extrapolate and correlate and even out this rather awkward history of Robert F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy having spied on Martin Luther King, although they are positioned as um, being progressive as far as civil rights?
1: Yeah, it's a wonderfully complicated issue. The Kennedys, when they came into the presidency, when John Kennedy became president in January of 1961, were conventional Democrats. And a conventional Democrat in 1961 didn't want to go anywhere near civil rights as an issue because the Democratic Party depended on the votes of the white South. It had always depended on the votes of the white South. And really, it's Lyndon Johnson in 1964 who changes that. And so the Kennedys' approach to King was very, very um, tentative and in some ways, as you just said, very disturbing. They didn't want to deal with King. They saw King as a problem, not as a solution. And what King and his movement did is forced them in 1963 to embrace civil rights through the Birmingham campaign in the spring of 1963, And then Robert Kennedy did this thing that human beings sometimes do. He changed. He went through the experience of the civil rights movement in the early 60s from his side as attorney general. He went into the Senate in 1965. He was elected in 64. And he became a different person than he had been. He went through the horror of his brother's assassination, which he to some extent, blamed himself for, took some sense of responsibility for, at least feared he was responsible for. That changed him. Became a different person by 1966, 67, and 1968. He wasn't the same Robert Kennedy he was when he ordered those wiretaps in 63.
0: Well, he always had a very tenuous, as his brother did, relationship with uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And, uh, <laughs> a
1: polite way of putting it. <laughs> yeah,
0: polite way. And you could see a, a discernible look of pain on his face every time Lyndon Johnson uh, had the privilege of really filling documents, signing presidential seals, if you will, to the very actions that his brother was bringing about. And he must have, you know, looked on at this other man, who was in a way a nemesis for uh, John F. Kennedy, to see this man get the glory, if you will, for signing legislation and and movement, which uh, actually was the spearhead project of his of his brother. Uh, how was he able to endure that?
1: Badly. Um, so I think there's two sides to that story. There's. It's absolutely true, as you're saying, that Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson couldn't stand each other. It was a mutual hatred of each other, and it was a very deep hatred of each other. And as you said, Robert Kennedy really saw Lyndon Johnson as denigrating his brother's legacy. And especially on Vietnam. Now, whether I don't think he was right on that, but that's how we perceived what Johnson was doing, that Johnson, his brother wouldn't have made the mistakes that Lyndon Johnson made. There is another side to this story, and I think it's an important one to acknowledge. In many ways, Lyndon Johnson... Was a far more successful president, especially in domestic policy, than John Kennedy was. And I think there's an argument to be made, probably in my mind, a convincing argument to be made that he accomplished more than John Kennedy would have accomplished. Because Lyndon Johnson, for all his faults, was a brilliant legislator. So he managed to get through the Civil Rights Act of '64, the Voting Rights Act of '65, the Great Society programs, the War on Poverty, that. I'm not convinced John Kennedy would have managed. So in some ways, Lyndon Johnson was frustrated that he was, in fact, extending John Kennedy's legacy and yet had John Kennedy's little brother sniping at him from the sidelines.
0: Now, the interesting thing about Robert F. Kennedy is that he was clearly obviously assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles by Sirhan Sirhan. And Sirhan Sirhan was only 24 years of age. He was a, a Jordanian. He wanted to kill Robert F. Kennedy because of Robert F. Kennedy's pro-Israeli position. What do you make of that?
1: In some ways, and I'm not sure I want to push this too hard, but in some ways, I have come to think of that assassination as really a precursor to the complicated the increasingly complicated and violent politic tangle between the United States and the Middle East. Now, Sirhan Sirhan was mentally ill. I think he fits the profile much more of that single shooter that we've come to see in our own day than he does the kind of political assassin of, I'd say, James Earl Ray. Um, But it is, as you said, tangled up with the politics of the Middle East in a way that would come back to the United States again and again and again. So... You have to understand it, obviously, in the context of the 60s, but I also think you can see it as a precursor of the terrible political tangle the United States has been in Middle Eastern politics now for decades and decades.
0: Well, let's continue with politics. Let's look at Hubert Humphrey and, uh, and, and roll back to Chicago, the Democratic Convention and all the riots that ensued. Um, yeah. You know, we can look back at old footage. We can even see fictionalized accounts like Medium Cool and, and things of that nature. Uh, it, it, it was a horror to the world. I mean, I don't think the world had ever seen such a, uh, a visceral, horrible display of, of violence before it. And indeed, the the chant at the time was, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. And just about the whole world was watching. Um, it took a long time for America, I think, in its, in its social order, and certainly perception in other countries, to uh, rectify that very, very negative image. Does it still linger on to this day? I mean, eventually, we'd get to Kent State and other things. But do you think that that's still part of the American consciousness? Or do you think it's largely forgotten?
1: It's a really interesting question. It's a little hard for me to say for sure, because I live in Chicago, and it is certainly not Chicago, forgotten in Chicago. Um, But I think at the time, what it symbolized was the utter inability of the Democratic Party. This took place at the Democratic National Convention, or at least during the Democratic National Convention. And the worst conflicts of that week were on the very night that Hubert Humphrey was given the Democratic Party nomination. And I think what it symbolized for millions and millions of Americans was that the Democratic Party had lost its ability to provide Americans with the kind of stability and security that millions of Americans wanted. And in that sense, I think it really does still endure because the Democrats – now it's many, many decades since – but to to this day, the Democrats have never been able to kind of lay an absolute claim – to its ability to provide that stability and security in a way that in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, that was the heart of the Democratic Party's appeal. Its appeal was that it could take care of ordinary people. It could give ordinary people a sense that their world was safe. And with 68 and with the Democratic Party and the convention riots, the Democrats lost that ability.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Dr. Kevin Boyle. He is the William Smith Mason Professor of American History at Northwestern University. And his specialty, amongst many things, is uh, examining the 1960s. And he has an anticipated book that will come out eventually called The Splintering, A Narrative History of the 1960s. Well, figuratively speaking, we've been looking at 1968. Let's open the French doors and widen the vista a bit to all of the 1960s. We have various radicals on the scene. Um, We have people like the weathermen. Uh, For the purpose of our audience, would you like to explain who the weathermen were?
1: Sure. The weathermen were an offshoot, a splinter of the leading... Um, college activist group, the Students for Democratic Society, SDS, which was founded in 1960 and became a leading force in the anti-war movement in the mid-1960s. It splintered in the late 60s into a variety of groups, one of them being the Weathermen, who, a tiny, tiny little faction of activists who embraced What I think is fair to say would be kind of anarchist violence as a method of social change.
0: Well, Tom Hayden from the group becomes legitimized and decides to run as a candidate and winds up marrying uh, Jane Fonda. I had the uh, experience of, of meeting them both. And uh, the the whole weatherman thing—that which is radical in one era—then becomes somewhat, uh, perhaps, romanticized or accepted in in the next. Yeah. But that didn't always happen. Um, for instance, Abby Hoffman. Would you like to talk about Abby Hoffman for our young younger viewers who have no idea who he is?
1: So Abby Hoffman came out of yet another faction of the anti-war movement. Um, this was kind of a mashup. Between anti-war activism and the hippie culture that kind of blossomed in the Bay Area in the mid-1960s and '66, particularly in '67, and what Abby Hoffman did was kind of mash up those two things, so that the anti-war move, his version of the anti-war movement, embraced both anti-war politics and a sort of um, hippie performance art, and so. It, the, in 68 he led a faction in the Chicago protests that kind of turned anti-war activism in or at least fused anti-war activism with sort of farce so that's the thing about the anti-war movement in the United States it was always this incredibly complex mashup of different politics Tom Hayden came out of the old that FDS kind of fervent, college student activism of the early 60s. Abby Hoffman came out of this hippie version of the anti-war movement. There was a pacifist version of the anti-war movement. I argue that there was a conservative version of the anti-war movement, which may be the most important one. Um, so the anti-war movement had all these various factions that, of course, ordinary Americans who would never have thinking have thought about going to an anti-war protest didn't understand at all. I'm All intrigued they was could a you, mass could, of people.
0: I'm intrigued. Could you you referenced you said that you would argue that there was actually a conservative branch. Yeah. Could you tell us more about that?
1: I'm so happy you asked. I'm so there, glad I asked you. <laughs> um, there's a fascinating dynamic of Americans' opinions of the anti-war of the Vietnam War that's really painfully obvious. So the Vietnam War really escalates. It becomes an American war in 1965. When that happens, most Americans support the war in Vietnam. The vast majority support the war in Vietnam at the start. That's what Americans do. They rally around a war. But by nineteen sixty eight, most Americans had turned against the war. Tet they Offensive?
0: Thought, was it because of the Tet Offensive primarily?
1: Well, the Tet Offensive, which happens in February of 1968, certainly hurts. But support for the war had been declining through 66, 67, and into 68, and then really accelerates with Tet. But what the polls show, if you look at the polling data, what most Americans wanted in 1967, and to a degree, substantial degree in 68, wasn't the U. It was Either the U.S. get out of this war or the U.S. escalate the war. They actually wanted more war. Now, that's not because most Americans, I believe, are warmongers. It's what most Americans want are short wars, and they want decisive wars. They want wars that end quickly and in victory. That's not what was happening in Vietnam. So most Americans actually wanted to see the U.S. use more power, more bombing. 20% 20% of Americans wanted the U.S. to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam in 1967 and 1968.
0: Is that where we get the expression, uh, nuke back to the Stone Age?
1: Yes, that actually comes from the great architect of the World War II bombing campaign, the horrific bombing campaign in Japan. It's from Curtis LeMay, and who is the model for the crazy general in um, Dr. Strangelove. That's his phrase who also, by the way, is the vice presidential candidate for George Wallace in 1968. Most Americans want this war won, and they want it won quickly. And that's what Lyndon Johnson can't give them. So when Richard Nixon runs in 1968 saying he's going to end the war with honor, what he's doing is he's playing to this very big conservative approach to the war, and they can't stand the anti-war movement. Americans despised the anti-war movement. Seventy percent of Americans said that the anti-war movement was disloyal to the United States. So we have a vision of the anti-war movement in the United States as being pervasive, when in fact it's a small group of Americans. It's a minority of Americans. Ninety percent of Americans in the 1960s never attend a protest. The strongest response to the war particularly in the early days, is Americans want more.
0: With that mindset, um, as you describe it basically, and the anti-war movement is essentially perceived by many as the anti-American movement, Exactly. Uh, when does the, the, the willingness to even entertain the idea of, of peace with honor come about? I mean, we have the fall of Saigon in 1975. Um, what preceded that?
1: The election of '68 is really meant to be – what Richard Nixon wants to do when he runs in 1968 is he has this promise, he will end the war in Vietnam, he has a plan to end the war, he says. This is an appeal that he is stealing straight from Dwight Eisenhower in 1952. In 1952, Dwight Eisenhower ran for the presidency during the Korean War, and he promised the American people that if he's elected, he would go to Korea didn't say what he was going to do there. It just sounded good. That's what Richard Nixon was doing in 68. He was offering this vague promise to end the war. And what he then does once he becomes president is he realizes in a way that Lyndon Johnson doesn't. He takes a basic rule, I think straight from Dwight Eisenhower again, that what Americans hate is a ground war, is a long ground war. And so he begins to pull back American troops really very quickly, 69, 70, 71. And he escalates the bombing. The worst bombings of the war in Vietnam are during the Nixon administration. And what he's trying to do is pound the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, into cutting a deal.
0: When did he go into Cambodia?
1: 1970. Well, the U.S. had been in Cambodia secretly for a long time, not in a large way, but he extends the war in May of 1970, which is what causes the Kent State shootings. Kent State shootings are four days after Richard Nixon announces that the U.S. has sent troops into Cambodia. This is a great mistake. It's the fundamental mistake of the Nixon administration from everything descends from that.
0: We were told that Nixon was not getting correct data, that um, his uh, secretary of state was more or less cooking the books and saying that there was more success than there actually was and that the casualties were lower. Do you think that Nixon believed it?
1: Nixon didn't believe much that his secretary of state told him. Richard <laughs> Richard Nixon believed um, that he was his, wanted to be his own secretary of state, and so he picked a secretary of state who he marginalised. The administration ran foreign policy, especially in Vietnam, out of the White House. So it was really Henry Kissinger, who at the time was his national security advisor, and Nixon himself, really guiding foreign policy. When he decided to send the U.S. troops into Cambodia, which he did very quickly um, in a really short time span, um, he didn't tell his secretary of state until the orders had already been given.
0: I've been to Hanoi, and I've been to Haiphong. I've been to North vietnam and uh, one can go and visit ho chi Minh. Uh, he's on display just like lenin is in in, in moscow what's astonishing though is to v- actually visit the hut from where ho chi Minh conducted the war he has about two telephones lots of bamboo a couple of fans and it's it's uh, a complete puzzlement to me how he could have the united states with all of its sophistication on the run for so long what do you make of that
1: I think that the United States had the world's greatest military. It had the world's greatest military in terms of its technological sophistication, had, I think, an argument to be made about how well-trained its military was, at least at the lower ends of its ranks. But it had clearly an extraordinary level of military power and sophistication. What it didn't have was an army that was trained to fight a guerrilla war. It had no idea. How to fight a guerrilla war? It had no. It did in idea.
0: 1776.
1: It certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, of course, the problem is that technology—that's what technology wipes out. That it wipes out a kind of subtle approach, a supple approach to fighting a war, and turns it into. I mean, we were perfectly equipped to stop a Russian advance into West Germany. That's not the war they were fighting in Vietnam. They were trying to fight a guerrilla war that they had no idea how to fight. The worst damage the United States inflicted in Vietnam was in South Vietnam. Now, that tells you something oddly perverse about the ways that the U.S. fought that war, that the very country, to take a cliche, I suppose, that it was there to save, it was destroying because it had— nothing but a kind of overwhelming technological power to apply, never could figure out how to fight that war. It didn't have the same commitment that the Vietnamese forces did, the North Vietnamese forces did, to the liberation of their own country. I think when Colin Powell took the lessons of Vietnam, I think he took many of the right lessons. This is not the kind of war the United States is, knows how to fight, and we have seen that play itself out in our in more recent years. We haven't really talked much about the kind of pivotal turn in the war yet. Um, the Tet Offensive happens in Vietnam in the end of January and then runs through February and March of 1968.
0: So Tet was the new year, and it was the equivalent of, if you will, like a temporary Christmas Day armistice, where everyone would stop fighting. Typically, there would be a truce for the Tet festival, but the North Vietnamese did not hold to that, neither did the Viet Cong, and 85,000 troops From the North, Viet Cong, North Vietnamese entered and attacked 36 major cities and towns in South Vietnam that night, just a few minutes after midnight.
1: And that was a absolutely dramatic turning point for U.S. policy in Vietnam. Because with the Tet Offensive, though, in fact, the U.S. repelled the offensive within a week or two, the main thrust of the offensive within a week or two. What it did is it had two dramatic effects. One was to convince many, many Americans that this war was nowhere near being over, which then played into the dynamic I was talking about a little while ago, that Americans don't want to see the war dragging out. And then it had this other effect that doesn't receive much attention but deserves enormous attention. It then triggered – the Tet Offensive then triggered a massive international financial crisis, In March of 1968, a dramatic financial crisis that came very close to melting down the financial structures of the Western world. In
0: 1968, the percentage of unemployment was the lowest it had been for nearly a decade and a half. It was 3.3%. So you're saying at this time of prosperity, uh, 3.3% unemployment, uh, ridiculously low. You have now a burgeoning financial crisis because of TET?
1: Yes. We had – the United States experienced one of the worst financial crises. lasted a couple of days. That's all. Um, most Americans don't know about it. It was in the news at the time, but it seemed technical. Um, and so it didn't become a major story. But inside the White House in March of 1968, the National Security Advisor was writing to memos to the president saying the entire Western financial system could collapse within a matter of days if we don't do something. And it's a direct result of that.
0: And what happened? What did they do to avert destruction?
1: One of the so what happened in the uh, in a really short version is that at that time, anyone who held dollars had the right to exchange their dollars for gold to literally exchange their dollars for gold after tet major world investors particularly the french but not exclusively the french staged a massive run on us gold because they believed that the american economy was in and american politics was in such disarray that the us would devalue the dollar and so they made they staged a massive run on gold so serious that the U.S. was going to run out of gold, never had enough gold to support all the dollars floating in the world. (laughs) And that's the disaster that was coming. Because once that happened, then the financial structures that had been created after World War II would collapse. The answer from the White House turned out to be partly technical. They managed to kind of slow down the rate of The panic, and to stop the panic with some technical adjustments in um, exchange rates. But more fundamentally, that's one of the reasons why, at the end of March, last day of March of 1968, Lyndon Johnson dropped out of the presidential race. Once you know that that crisis was happening, then when you hear him, Speaking to the American people in 1968, in March of 68, when he withdraws from the presidential race that he had every right to run in, it's in part, not exclusively, but in part, to calm the financial markets of the Western world. And so what he says is, we are not going to escalate this war anymore. It's time to start pulling back, and I'm dropping out of the presidential race. And that is a direct response to this financial crisis that most Americans don't know happened.
0: Let's end on a on a less heavy note. From 1968, or the 60s in general, what do you think is the most hopeful, encouraging thing that came out of that tumultuous year?
1: This probably isn't a light answer, but I think that the most encouraging thing that came out of the 1960s um, was the transformation of American race relations. Now, that's not to argue that That the problem of race has been solved in the United States. It is to say that the terms of American racial politics were transformed in a really fundamental way. Um, I don't know if there is anything more important than that.
0: It's been an utter delight to talk to you, Dr. Kevin Boyle. He is the William Smith Mason Professor of American History at Northwestern University, a very distinguished position to hold. He is currently working on a book called The Splintering, A Narrative History of the 1960s. And I must say, Dr. Kevin Boyle, that surely you must have a wait list for your classes that go around the block six times because you're completely uh, enthralling and enchanting and we are so grateful that you've been able to join us on Watching America. Thank well, you, that's sir. very
1: generous of you. Thank you for letting me join you.
0: hope to see you again. Blessings.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It was different in many ways, and so were those who did the fighting. In World War II, the average age of the combat soldier was 26. In Vietnam, he was 19. Vietnam. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to invite to Watching America, Mr. Greg Messel. Mr. Greg Messel is, in fact, an author. He writes fiction. This is now an opportunity for him to share about his 11th book, which is really an examination of the era of 1968 and one particular event at that. That is the would-be future career, which came to a tragic end of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. On June 5th, 1968, he had the horrendous news from the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles that, well, Robert Kennedy had been killed. We couldn't believe it. We couldn't uh, digest it. it we would, that was right on the throes of what had happened um, certainly earlier with Martin Luther King in the same year. And of course, just a matter of five years or just about prior to that, the loss of President Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. It was a a spree of very, very threatening, uh, torturous events for the American public. My guest, Greg Messel, has decided to delve into that with his fictional character, which he'll tell us more about. I have to ask you, what motivated you of all events from 1968, because there was a lot going on, why did you uh, decide to focus particularly on the campaign and the events related to the death and assassination by Sirhan Sirhan of Robert F. Kennedy as your chief subject.
2: Well, I've gone through over the last couple of years several 50th anniversaries of various events, including my graduation from high school in the Bay Area, and um, that's somewhat disturbing (laughs) to think of 50 years, but it certainly doesn't seem like that. This is time, political time, and the assassination of, of Robert F. Kennedy was a very, a very personal thing to me because I was very interested in politics, and that's when I became kind of a political and news junkie during that time. And I I was also affected by the events we would see in the Bay Area. I mean, the uh, anti-war things in Berkeley, the civil rights, and then You had People's uh, People's
0: Park in Oakland, for instance, was going on at this time. Yes. Black Panthers.
2: Yes. I was going to a junior college in Concord, and I had a friend who was going to Cal Berkeley, and we went over to Berkeley a lot and just observed and took part in a lot of the craziness there. I put in the beginning of my book kind of a personal note that says I was watching... The California primary, and hoping and beyond hope that Robert Kennedy would win. My parents and my younger brother were already in bed, and I had a final the next day. It's early in the morning at school, but I, instead of studying or sleeping or anything, I was glued to the coverage of the California primary. I kept telling myself, I've got to go to bed. But then uh, it looked like uh, the tide was turning and Robert Kennedy was winning, and then they said he was going to come down and give a victory speech. And I thought, oh, well, I've got to see that. And so I stayed up till just after midnight when he gave the speech, and he then headed off the podium through the kitchen pantry where Sirhan was waiting But meanwhile, I had clicked off my TV and thought, I've got to go to bed. Then when I got up early the next morning, I was getting bulletins on the radio about Senator Kennedy's condition. And that's when I discovered the awful truth.
0: Well, the title of your book is Dreams That Never Were. And what do you suppose were the dreams that could have been that were not?
2: That quote is very interesting. Many people in the country had a real hunger... To change things the way they were, and people who were in my demographic uh either naively or whatever thought you know we really can change things, things could really be different. we could end the war in Vietnam, and we could have blacks and whites living in harmony, and we all these things really could happen, and I think that's the um, gist of his quote where he says some men see things as they are and say why i dream of things that never were and say why not and that's where i pulled the title of the book
0: certainly there was a tremendous contrast because you had uh, around the same time you had people like barry goldwater and then at the other extreme of course would be uh, robert f kennedy um he's a he's a puzzling person though because when he was made attorney general uh, I have heard, and maybe you can confirm this, but many sources say that he was given the errand of making sure that Martin Luther King Jr. was was watched and observed and traced. Is that true or is that uh, uh, a misallegation?
2: I I don't know about that. I mean, uh, in that era, anything is, um, <laughs> is possible, as we found out from the Pentagon Papers and everything else. But uh, he seemed to be very supportive of Martin Luther King and of the uh, efforts in the South. But, but I think one of Robert Kennedy's finest moments was in um, the night Martin Luther King was assassinated when he went into uh, the black neighborhoods in Indianapolis and announced that to them against all advice from police and security people and tried to comfort the black community uh, over this great loss. And Indianapolis was one of the few major cities which did not have riots and other problems.
0: Well, you've created a character, and uh, tell us about your lead character, who's actually a journalist uh, in your fictionalized uh, historical drama related to to the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Um, Who is your character, and, and why did you derive this image of... Who this protagonist would be?
2: I decided to make him kind of this young, idealistic reporter. Now, I've been a reporter in my past and um, spent a lot of time around newspapers. And somebody stopped me when I was a little boy and asked me what I want to be when I grow up. I would have said a newspaper reporter. And I've always felt that way. Uh, In this case, I wanted to be able to see these events in 1968, not just the assassination, but all these events, through his eyes. And he was a young, idealistic guy. And I think he typifies what you kind of said at the beginning of the program, the people who who were just shocked beyond belief that this could happen again and that Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, the book is about, uh, I think, uh, the death of hope and idealism and what do people do when that happens to them.
0: In writing your books, do you ever take pilgrimages to the locations where events happened for inspiration?
2: Uh, yes, I do. I feel like I have a pretty good knowledge of San Francisco, for instance, but when I go back there, I've gone to some of the places which are locales in the books I have just to remind myself and kind of get the feel. But in, in the case of this book, I spent an afternoon at Arlington Cemetery by myself. My wife was in a seminar, and I was just there by myself. And that, of course, is a really profound experience to mm-hmm. be there. And then I uh, walked up to the Kennedy graves and spent some time at Robert Kennedy's grave and just thought about that and thought about when I watched on television the what turned out to be a candlelight Burial—the only burial they've had at night at Arlington—and then you have the JFK grave. But I—I I just found it interesting that, of course, the JFK grave, which has Jackie Kennedy there and, and the children, a- also, the eternal flame. Yes, is a bit, is very grandiose, and I at first I'm thinking, where's Robert Kennedy's grave? And you just walk down the hill, and there's a little white cross there, mm. and uh, I thought that. Uh, was an interesting contrast.
0: When they were burying Ted Kennedy some years back, it got darker and darker and darker. And so it was kind of a mixed uh, dusk kind of affair because they couldn't even get the cameras to work to record the images anymore. So that, that's kind of a curious thing, too. Yeah,
2: you're absolutely correct.
0: With every novel, there is the surface story and then there's a driving force behind it. So uh, we know the character, the lead character, Alex Hurley, is a journalist. Uh, we know also the setting and the time, 1968, based around the events uh, of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. What is the, the driving force that propels the story forward, though? Is is there a theme that you were conscious or perhaps unconscious of when you, when you wrote it, but saw it later?
2: One of the things that I say in the book through one of the characters is that 1968 was uh, a series of Horrible events, really. And Alex says, you know, any moment of happiness or joy that you feel in 1968 seems to be immediately counteracted by some soul-crushing tragedy that um, negates the happiness or goodwill that you felt.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and my guest is Greg Messel. Uh, who is the author of a new book entitled Dreams That Never Were. And you have chosen a very interesting uh, era to look at. There's something, I think, about uh, circa 1968, 69, 70, 71, which is quite fascinating. Uh, A point not lost, incidentally, on Quentin Tarantino with his latest film, which is set during 1969, uh, also incorporating the Manson murders and what have you. Did you have to limit yourself as far as what you were going to include that was going on in the news at the time? How did you decide what to leave out?
2: Well, he goes back to San Francisco and, of course, he's witnessing the horrible events in Chicago that surrounded the Democratic Convention when Hubert Humphrey is uh, nominated. The whole world is
0: watching, as we were told.
2: Yes, and, and they were. And I felt like I needed to move it along and stay focused kind of on the two things, the two big events of the assassination and then the Vietnam War, which was ongoing. And I felt like I really knew a lot about the Vietnam War, but in researching this book, I discovered a lot of really disturbing statistics. And like on the day Robert Kennedy died, 109 soldiers died in Vietnam. And also that if you look at the demographics of those who died— the majority of them were 18 and 19 year olds. We kind of forget how young everyone was who was fighting that war.
0: There was a song that came out um, uh, in the 1980s, which was called "19," and the whole thing was uh, a very macabre, sad homage to the fact that the average person who died in Vietnam was just that, 19.
2: Yes, and I went. I actually went to the Kennedy Library a couple of weeks ago when I was in Boston, and. They had some campaign uh, paraphernalia there for sale. I bought one button that uh, was a Robert Kennedy campaign paraphernalia. And I said, if I were 21, I'd vote for Kennedy. And, you know, that, that really hits on a big theme of that era. Is I yes. can go to Vietnam and mm-hmm. die, but I can't vote.
0: Big point. Very big, important point indeed. What surprised you? Uh, about writing this book and in your research, is there anything that uh, you've already alluded to the fact that the, you know certainly was amazing and sad uh, to see that the 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 prominent age was nineteen. Was there anything else that struck you that you hadn't anticipated?
2: Well, I think just in in a review, you know, we talk about how young the soldiers in Vietnam were. It is quite astounding now to think back that. Robert Kennedy was 42 when he died, and Martin Luther King was, I believe, 39. Mm. Those are very young men.
0: Yes, yeah.
2: (laughs) And and then when you're faced with what is kind of the older establishment figures left in the political void after Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy are killed, that, I think, led to a lot of the, the disillusionment that everyone felt it's also interesting to watch if you could watch a lot of the video of that time um robert kennedy when he would do a motorcade his car is completely mobbed by the crowd and the only security he has is um two people hanging onto him to prevent him being pulled from the car and um, his campaign people were saying this scares us to death. Mm. And he uh, said, these are my people and I want to touch them. I want them to touch me. And um, that was his attitude about it. And I do remember a time in San Francisco, this was just a few days before he was killed. There was a motorcade through Chinatown in San Francisco and Mm -hmm. someone threw a string of firecrackers at the car and The last thing anybody wants to hear around Robert Kennedy is a bunch of popping sounds.
0: Did you use that in the book, that event?
2: Yes, yes. I noticed that in the tapes of the night of the assassination. There's all kinds of balloons in the ballroom. and it's very crowded and all the balloons are popping, of course, and
0: an, cinematically, and was, it, you know, 50% of our, our cinematic experience is sound. So cinematically, it, it really lends itself to an adaption for film, the, the scenes that you're describing. I want to know, what was the motivation for Sirhan Sirhan? I know later on he uh, apologized of a sort, but what drove him to want to take out a former attorney general? And uh, a man running for office. I mean, what, what what was his motive?
2: He said that it was because in Oregon, Robert Kennedy had made a speech and promised to give um, support to Israel with warplanes and uh, and other things. And he, uh, Syrian, of course, a Palestinian, and he thought that was a threat to his country. He had been a Robert Kennedy supporter, but that turned him against him. I believe he said that he turned against him and he felt like he had to stop him.
0: Wow. My guest is novelist Greg Messel, who has written the book Dreams That Never Were, which is a historical work of fiction based around the events and circumstances related to the assassination Of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968. He is not a novice as a novelist. When it comes to writing, he has written 10 prior books. All have been successful, and no doubt we expect the same for this one. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Greg Messel again, author of Dreams That Never Were. It's been delightful. Thank you. Try to love one another right now. For the last hour, everybody got together to listen to Watching America. I'm the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer is Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. Watching America is made possible by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public
2: Media in Norfolk, Virginia.